Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm joined by my friend, Dr. Alap Shah. Dr. Shah has functioned as an anesthesiologist in many different practice models, and today we talk about his experience in running an anesthesia company in Southern California. He takes us behind the scenes to examine many of the complexities of operating a practice. We had a really interesting discussion about how contracts are negotiated with hospitals and some of the challenging parts of navigating the political landscape with hospital administration. Much of what we discussed today is really embedded in the fabric of anesthesia finances, and these are really important concepts for physicians to understand if they desire to track the flow of dollars related to their specialty through the healthcare system. We covered some really awesome content this week, which we've never broached before, and I'm really excited to share it with you this week. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. I'm very pleased to have a returning guest, Dr. Alap Shah. Alap is an anesthesiologist and a business owner and has taken a really interesting path. I, I had him on back in the teens uh, to talk about his career as a an entrepreneur and anesthesiologist simultaneously. He's continued on that track since we've spoken and has a lot of great experience from which we're going, we're going to draw today in talking about uh, some of the challenges faced by business owning, specifically like anesthesia practice business owning physicians. So Dr. Shaw, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much, Justin. And again, thank you for having me again um, on, your, on, on your delightful series. Um, you know, and since we've last talked, um, I remember the, the content of what we talked about before, starting off as an independent business owner, um, as an individual physician, anesthesiologist, going and trying to pave a way compared to the confines of a traditional private practice or group practice. Um, since then, um, I've expanded on the role, um, going from simply as an independent practitioner, independent anesthesiologist, to a partnership and running a group with like-minded individuals that are also focused on the same um, endpoints, um, giving high quality care in a cost-effective manner to the areas that need it the most, the medically underserved areas, especially around Los Angeles. Awesome. And I'm excited to unpack that with you today. One of the things that is a, a strong uh, personal passion of mine and the reason this podcast exists is to equip physicians as much as possible to maintain agency over their own careers and their own um, decisions around how they practice and around compensation and around the business functions of the, the practice of medicine. And so connecting with you, uh, you know, early on has been a real uh, fun thing for me. And I'm really hopeful that today's content is going to give our listeners some tools for people who are interested in this, like, you know, running an anesthesia company or even being like a, a solo anesthesiologist who contracts on their own behalf um, to be able to ask some important questions. So tell me a little bit, maybe actually before we dive into the what you just described, take a minute and just talk about that first you know, year or two of attending Hood and what what does being an independent anesthesiologist mean in that context? Absolutely. So um, a lot of that, you know, I remember touching that on that in our previous discussion, but to summarize here, a lot of that requires, first of all, the logistics and the medical legal background. 
setting up as an individual corporation, for example, in the state of California as an S corporation. Um, and again, there's a whole separate discussion about W2-1099, which always seems to come my way whenever I talk about any practice-related thing. And it's very relevant, but it's important for people to know that W2-1099 as a tax setup is very different from that as how you're legally set up to practice in the state of California. So I remember um, we touched on that briefly last time. After that, a lot of it is similar to that of running any kind of business, especially in the United States going out there, marketing yourself, networking, um, having good quality um, people skills, um, being able to work and have the cojones, lack of a better word, to approach administration with ideas, your group leaderships with ideas. Um, you know, a lot of times most people, including myself, started off in the constraints of working in a private practice. And although a lot of people tend to take the keep your head down, let's make partner method, um, I encourage people to not do that, especially in this day and age where even group contracts that are long lasting are, you know, are, they're, they're, they may be, you know, a losing game at some point. And to really keep asking the big questions, keep showing initiative and keep working your way up to the C-suite. Go. Did you have, uh, yeah. Did you have any role models or, or people that sort of held this option out to you? Because I know for a lot of, you know, residents and early career attendings who kind of come up through the, the anesthesia training track of med school residency and then getting that first job, doing what you describe is pretty uncommon. So it's, it's interesting to me that you kind of became aware of these options and these important questions so early in your career. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. Um, role, role models all along the way. I started off with academic role models uh, when I was in residency and training. Um, but when I came out to California and I took the, you know, I took the goals that I'm going to go into private practice and learn for myself. When I first came to California, the first group that I interviewed with uh, was a community group. It was actually the same group for which um, I obtained the contract for the hospital several years later. I mean, although I didn't sign with this group the first time, I kept my connections with them. And after a year or two, after I left my first job, um, I actually joined this group and I started working with these individuals. Now, a lot of these individuals themselves had inherited this group um, and were, you know, again, a young collegial group of people trying to make it work in the community. So it was really working under their helm for a good year, year and a half, where I really learned about what it's like to be running a group, um, the ends of the you know, compensation reimbursement that's received by the group and paid out to each individual uh, anesthesiologist or anesthetist working in the practice, um, the problems associated with you know, patient care, people trying to jump you know, uh, or cut corners rather, um, and, you know, provide care for patients who need further workup and all the things that you typically see. And so I learned that um, just working under their helm. Um, and then actually in July last year, just shortly after we talked last, um, my colleagues had actually stepped away from the hospital and having worked with the administration, um, I actually created a proposal and using my previous colleagues, they were my role models, they actually mentored me uh, with creating my first proposal, which I then sent to the hospital. Although it was initially rejected, um, they did come back to us and we did go forward with that proposal. Yeah. Do you have any experiences kind of from early on where you realized, you began to realize the, the whole different 
categories that you had to start thinking in as a business owning physician rather than uh, just a clinician only? Um, so again, a lot of that came from the independence that was really thrust upon us during the first year. I think a lot of it really comes down to uh, the different pay structure and being comfortable with it. Um, in any groups that I've worked with or run, the biggest question always comes up is how is the group being compensated? And then how am I being compensated as a person working for this group? And then a very relevant question is how long lasting is this? How strong is your contract? So that was really, you know, those three, those three questions were my three really only questions. How do I get set up to be someone who works in a private practice compared to your traditional W-2 employee or a non-S-curb 1099 working for a private practice? After that, um, once I did start my practice last July, um, a lot of the questions, you know, came up as to, first of all, um, how do I manage my group's daily operations? Every profession is different, right? Whether you're in financial planning, whether you're in engineering or you know, software industry, you've got something, whether it's a huge time-consuming or money-consuming factor that really encompasses, it really is really the essence of your job. And I hate to sort of say it, but when it comes to contract and anesthesia groups, Justin, we are technically glorified anesthesia staffing services. We staff the hospitals with high quality providers that can provide the means to make an ends meet. In other words, provide care so that surgeons can be happy and surgeries can be done um, in a safe manner, in a time sensitive manner, um, in a way that the, keeps the hospital profitable, keeps the patients safe and keeps the surgeons happy. So when I eventually realized after many painstaking experiences that that's really the main tenets early of what hospital sees us as a role, then I really started transitioning myself into being like, okay, well, now we really have to deal with the intricacies of staffing. And that's where you know, I started learning about the real business um, and, and things that affect any profession. You know, whether it be, you know, someone who's staffing a fast food chain or staffing a hospital, really the issues are the same. And I've actually talked with colleagues in different industries. So um, really, I can, I can touch on some of those things. But really, when it comes down to staffing, we're talking about call schedules. We're talking about people who don't want to work with the type of surgeon or the type of surgery. Uh, we've got people who need to go home early to take care of their parakeet. And you're having to go and find someone to take care of them. I kid you not. And I think I told you last year when I was trying to get married, having to come and take over for someone who didn't want to take, take call. I was like, oh, I'm too tired. I want to go home. And I have to be understanding of that, right? You don't want a colleague who's too tired taking call. Um, and, and you have to really, you really learn that you are taking care of a glorified staffing service, which is fine. You're an expert, you're full of experts, specialized trade. Um, but you still, like any other profession, any other day, you're still 24-7 there um, having to make ends meet when other people cannot. And that's what I learned about the business. So with the different places where you were, you know, running essentially an anesthesia staffing company, as you described it, uh, talk about sort of the how you how you went from, you know, a private practitioner uh, in, in the the sort of the profile of that role to now I'm running a company, I have maybe a couple docs, maybe a couple CRNAs, and I'm trying to contract with hospitals, surgery centers, other sites of service to be able to, 
you know, that's that feels like a big chasm there. Can you talk there, about that? It, exactly. So let's talk about the chasm. The chasm typically comes in the form of a request, request for proposal or RFP. Essentially, this is in the uh, a term for when a hospital is inviting another group to come in and provide services on their behalf to help with their own operations. This is in contrast to what we've been traditionally thinking of, where uh, someone is employed directly with the hospital and there is no glorified anesthesia service or any, any, any group in terms of the contracting anesthesia services group. So that was really the gap in terms of coming down and creating a proposal and especially creating a proposal for a medically underserved area. I want to go over the major tenets of this because this is where you really have to make the gap. So what a hospital is asking for in a proposal is really at all at the end of the day, they're asking for a number. What this number is, is how much money that the hospital needs to pay your group a day uh, with some caveats, whether it be calls or other things that you want to add in in order to make your group run. Now, the business side of here is that you have to know, first of all, what the group is bringing in. You have to know the payer mix of the hospital. That's information that can be garnered from a mentor or from a billing company. In my case, I was lucky to have both, a mentor that was able to talk to me about what this hospital was like, as well as the billing company. It was a really well-used billing company in Southern California that was looking to do the billing for this hospital and was able to provide me with the payer-level data for this hospital. So once I know what it's like to run this hospital, um, in terms of anesthesia services in terms of number of operating rooms, number of calls, types of services. I then combine that with the information I get in terms of how much money we're getting from our insurers, our payers, um, from the cases that we actually do. Um, and realistically, um, that's actually the hardest part. I'm going to touch on that in a second. And then combine that with the number that we think we need from the hospital in order to make our group run and run in a sense that it makes sense to me to take the time and energy to do so. That's the number they're looking for. Um, and that number is usually a per daily rate or it can be done per month. Um, so that's one of the biggest things. That's really the most important thing that they're looking for. Um, and so obviously you don't want to just slap a number down on a piece of paper. You want to show how you come to that. So the next part is coming up with, all right, so I know what money is coming in. Um, and in order to justify what I need from the hospital, you know, I've got X plus Y equals Z. In order to justify the Y component, um, I need to justify my staffing services. In other words, I need to justify my team, how many people I'm going to have there per day, who's going to be on call. But more importantly, and this is the thing that people continue uh, to struggle with with hospitals, is determining fair market value salaries, proposing them, and deriving your numbers from that. Um, this is very important because not a lot of groups do this. Um, I'm finding the competition of groups, for example, that want to come in and just underbid or have no bid at all. They, they request zero money from the hospital and they cover the money, they cover the hospitals, the, the, the staffing with money from other hospitals. Um, or they take a loss, which is what a lot of private equity firms do, you know, for a hope that they'll have a bigger gain several years down the road. So that is, you know, one of the things that we have to deal with, but we have to um, justify that and strongly so as to why we are having fair market value salaries and not the lower salaries that previous groups 
have been bidding and what the hospitals have been previously used to. Lastly, um, you know, well, actually, those are really the big, biggest thing. I'll summarize them for you here: is determining fair market value, determining um, the number of staffing um, solutions. That's both anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists. Um, determining their payer mix and how much money technically is coming in per month, taking into account, you know, for example, the coronavirus epidemic definitely impacted us. Um, and obviously from a business sense, then taking into account, you know, billing expenses, first year, second year fees, cash flow, and then obviously last but definitely not least, your own salary, your own directorship stipend. So those are all the elements that come into the proposal. And those are all the things that are needed in terms of being comfortable to make the jump from being an independent anesthesiologist working anywhere to going and even thinking about having your own group. You have to have a sense of all those things before you go and you try to obtain a contract. Got it. And that's how there's a lot there, obviously. I want to unpack a couple of those items specifically. So we talked about payer mix, and this is a topic that's come up a lot in the show. Maybe for our listeners who have heard, oh, good payer mix, bad payer mix, they've kind of, this is a phrase that we hear, and we understand, like, oh, there's a government payer, there's a commercial payer, there's a difference between those. Talk a little bit about how that applies for you in anesthesia contracting and, and the types of situations you're looking at, and maybe give a couple specific examples. Absolutely. And I want to preface what I say here, um, and I want to make a strong point of it that um, what we talk about here is not covered in most residency training programs. A lot of people, including the program that I work with right now, have come up to me and I've actually created the same curriculum for them. It's well vetted with the department. So when we talk about payer mix, when it, first of all, payer means insurance, the patient's insured. What payer mix basically means that in a practice, you've got patients coming in that are representing, or representing multiple insurances. Um, they can be regular straight up insurances such as you know, Medi-Cal, Medicaid. Um, they can be private insurers such as your EPOs, PPOs, your Blue Cross, Cygnus. And then you can have a little bit of a cross. You've got managed cares and IPAs, basically small local groups that create sort of contracts in terms of insurance companies to provide subsidized services. Um, that's also a level of competition for us. Um, and so you've got, you know, you've got a whole range. You've got county health plans. You've got, and then on one end, you've got people who come in are self-pay, people who come in and pay cash for their services. All of these things make up the payer mix. And when you average it out, these are the numbers that you need to know and the number of patients, the proportion of patients that are representing each payer in order to get to your Z, the amount of money that you're getting in from collections. So let's talk about that. Um, Martin Groups, our group so far has been focused on medically underserved areas, which really focus on low cost payer mix. We're talking about Medi-Cal, Medicaid, a lot of the managed care services. So I'm gonna give you some specific numbers and examples. And again, this is really high yield stuff, so please pay attention. Um, when it comes to, especially in the state, and one, one more thing actually, a lot of these numbers are also based not just on um, uh, you know, um, contracts between billing companies and hospitals and, and insurers, but also significant geographical variations. So the numbers I'm gonna give you are based on California, specifically Southern California. So when we talk about Medi-Cal Medicaid, which 
seems to be the name of the game, more patients representing these every single day and are urged to provide care for these patients. Um, we're talking about pay, the lower cost I mean, um, in terms of the um, collections that come in. In anesthesia, we, we look at units or unit value or overall a relative value, RVU, um, relative unit of value, a relative value of a unit. So um, that usually is made up of three things, a base unit, a time unit, and a risk unit. The base unit depends on the type of case that you're doing with more complex cases like spine cases, um, neurosurgery, transplant cases, having higher base case, base units. You have a time unit, which is done slightly different, but um, mostly um, one unit for every 15 minutes um, of anesthesia time. Um, and then you have risk units or modifiers based on, is this, you know, for example, a complex patient, ASA three plus, are we turning the table, doing field avoidance, doing special lines, different kinds of monitorings? These are things that we now you have to know we bill for, but not necessarily collect for. And I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit later. So uh, this base plus time plus uh, risk um, creates the number of units that you get for a case. Okay, so that's what we know. And so that's one piece of data that we have to get um, from a number of cases that we are doing in the hospital. So going back, when you're grading a proposal, in addition to your payer mix, you also want to know what type of cases and how many cases you're doing. Um, now it comes to the insurance value. So there's a dollar value. Um, it's very different for each insurance. For example, when it comes to Medi-Cal, Medicaid, we could be looking at 11 to $14 a unit, okay? Um, to put that in perspective, when we look at some of our higher paying insurers, um, and you have to understand that there's groups um, in those hospitals that really is already, you know, they're the cream of the crop. They have the better payers, if you may. We're talking about as high as 40 to $50 a unit, more realistically, 30 to $40 a unit here in Southern California. So think about the two numbers that I just told you. I just told you 11 to $14 a unit on one end, and I told you 30 to $40 a unit on the other end. Yes, and that's three, that's a magnitude of three difference. So if you can imagine, you know, um, if you had all commercial payers, you might not need any stipend from the hospital. The, mind, the number that you request daily rate that I was telling you about, you may not need anything. As a matter of fact, if you go to surgery centers that just have commercial insurers, oftentimes the groups are paying the surgery centers to work there. You know, people will be sending fruit baskets and flowers and candies and just to keep up the good rapport. Um, or, you know, some places actually pay, I mean, which is actually technically illegal. It's a kickback, but think about it. Um, it's very different from the community setting, which where I'm focused, where we have much more of the lower cost units. And so, you know, we might be dealing with an average of $17 a unit, all things considered, considering a lot of these hospitals are almost half or more, 60% Medi-Cal or managed care, which are again, local um, groups or local insurers that then take care or extensions of um, the Medi-Cal Medicare plans. Um, there is some variation when it comes to, and this is another topic that I definitely want to touch to in terms of the type of um, what we call provider, and I hate that term. It's an anesthesiologist versus nurse anesthetist. It's very daunting to hear this, but you must know that the vast majority of insurers do not differentiate between anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists. 
So they don't know if it's a CRNA or an anesthesiologist doing the case. Um, Medi-Cal Medicaid might be one of the few that do, and they pay $2 a unit less. So $9 a unit instead of $11 a unit. Um, so I gave you a little bit of information there, which can kind of give you a little bit of the frustration that groups must feel when they're catering towards the lower numbers. Yeah, before we do that, let me let me just briefly kind of rehash to make sure that I and our listeners all understand this. So especially in the RFP process, part of what's going through your mind is how much revenue, how much money can my company make from a hospital engagement based on the payer mix, based on the volume, and based on the the complexity of the procedure. So there, you know, to use simple round numbers, there's 100 patients a day, and the average, um, uh, I guess, like number of units, which is a function of the complexity, is going to be, I don't know, five units per patient. So there's 500 units, and that yields, as a function of the payer mix, you know, five units per patient, 500 total units, and maybe $17 per unit is, that's the revenue number. So so what you're doing then is you're trying to understand how much is in play in terms of total revenue and then how can I competitively, uh, you know, make a bid for that business in a way where I can get enough money to pay my people and, and keep the lights on. So that- let me give you an example, actually, um, based on what you just said, and I'll boil it down to that of a day. So let's take your example. Let's say we have 100 patients. And let's say that um, we expect a bill between all the cases, you know, let's say about, you know, about 15 units per patient in a day. Um, so that comes out to uh, about 1,500 units a day, okay? So I know that of those units that I'm getting from insurers, the $17 a unit. So um, that's my X right there, right? So X plus Y equals Z. The X is my 17. I know my Z. I know that in order to make my group run, in order to pay the, the guaranteed salaries and stipends that I've created in my group model, I need to be making about $32 a unit, a net, okay? So I know that I'm getting $17 a unit. So Z minus X equals Y, 32 minus 17 equals 15. So I need to be making, or I need to be receiving, or rather the proper word, I need to be subsidized about $15 per unit. Now, there's different ways you can go about this in your proposal. Um, if you have, you, this is where you, the business acumen comes into play. You have to be willing to take a risk. Be like, oh, I'm making X amount of number of units. Um, and I had to take, let's say it's a rainy day and I'm not making as many units. And I have the same number of people there. I know I'm taking a little bit of a loss. So I might need a little bit more than $15 a unit. So you start adjusting the numbers based on the variations, seasonal variations, other services offered. Um, things can be seen great. Oh, we've got some anesthesiologists within the nerve blocks. We're going to be building more units. This is great news for us. Um, so all these things you have to take into account that you need to hit that 32 or maybe 33 if you want to make any kind of profit, you know, or, you know, reasonable profit for your group. And so you have to be able to get that number and you, you use all these things that you play, your insurers, the number of cases, who can do additional services, value added services like nerve blocks, post-op checks, pain services, um, and all that, Yeah. And it's important to point out that this X, Y, Z, I really love this basic algebra. It's taking me back to like my seventh grade math class. Um, for that Y variable, what you described as the subsidy, this, this is like, this is mathematically describing how sort of out of whack this is. That the cost of providing anesthesia services is what you can earn doing it 
plus a bunch of money that the hospital has to throw on top in order to pay the people to do it. And, and I think part, one of the things we've talked about in the past is CMS setting reimbursement rates for all the different specialties. Anesthesia is one of them. And actually this year it's getting cut 10% again year over year, which is absolutely nuts. So if we, in a perfect world, it, there would be no subsidy because the anesthesia services themselves would reimburse enough to be able to cover the costs of the people doing the work, right? But because of C and there's this is it gets political and weird, and this is certainly beyond my core area of expertise. But um, what we see is that because CMS continues to cut reimbursement, that subsidy required from the hospitals is bigger and bigger and bigger, meaning the hospital gets paid on all their anesthesia services and some of that goes to the anesthesia group. And then the hospital throws another 500 or 750 or a million dollars on top just to uh, be able to make things work. And so that variable Y, that subsidy is actually the token. It's the number that an RFP is kind of being negotiated around. It's like, well, Dr. Shah's group needs a 500,000 subsidy. Maybe this other group, they'll claim that they only need a $200,000 subsidy. So that's where the, the difference in the proposals is often manifest. Absolutely. And a lot of it's not just once you have the proposal, and even if you have the contract, um, it's about maintaining it and increasing or increasing the understanding about that. Why? You brought up a great point. Um, for example, um, for everyone to know, Medicare, um, Medicare reimbursement is decreasing yet again. Um, what that means is practices like mine that, that receive quite a bit of collections, uh, we take care of a lot of patients who are represented by these insurers, we're going to be receiving a little bit less collections. So you would expect that, hey, if you're receiving, you know, 10% less for, you know, let's say 50% of our patients are Medi-Cal, that we would need about a 5% increase in what the hospital gives us for that Y the following year. No, um, that's likely does not happen. Most groups or most hospitals will really look to have groups to try to decrease their subsidies over time. And from a business point, that absolutely makes sense, right? You'd like to, you wanna be more productive as a group. You wanna bring in more sur surgeons and more patients, you know, through long lasting relationships. You wanna bring in more value added services to yourself so you can decrease what you ask for a hospital. But to a certain point, and you can only get to a certain point where you increase your productivity as you very, everyone very well knows, you can sacrifice the quality of patient care. So there is a limit. And so we have to help hospitals understand that, hey, they're gonna to continue to get great direct um, subsidies from the government, but they don't understand that we're gonna be getting less from the insurers that are sponsored by the government and that there is a need to pay more and they have to understand that if they want the same level of quality of care. Um, unfortunately, that is, it's a losing battle in most cases. Um, we do have a lot of groups that come in and try to do the opposite. Instead of increasing the hospital's understanding of why that why has to go up, they're like, oh, let's go down on it. Um, if you give us more hospitals, we give us this contract, we can come down. Um, think about it, if you have a big practice, which I do not, um, which has multiple hospitals and surgery centers, you can you can make that work. You can go and propose a lower rate. Now, I didn't know that um, when I proposed to the first hospital last year. Um, I knew that I was also the cheap, one of the cheaper, I was probably the cheapest bidder. Um, and I knew that I would be so because, you know, on one side we're dealing with people who want to underbid, 
years, but then you're also dealing with the bigger companies that have higher operating expenses um, that actually do care about, you know, putting fair market value salaries there and then, you know, doing whatever it takes to make their profit off of that. That's a whole other topic. Um, and they were much higher in terms of their daily bids, almost orders of magnitude higher. So I knew that I was trying to go for a sweet spot where it was something realistic. Um, it was something that would keep me competitive um, against bigger companies. Um, you know, I have a smaller company. I can deal with a lot more myself than like a 200 people company where 150 of them are all administrative. Um, again, administrative costs tend to be the biggest. Um, and so I, I kind of knew these things just in going into it. Um, unfortunately, it is every year um, they still want to keep or decrease that number um, for the group. Or conversely, find ways to increase their own OR volume. Uh, but again, that might increase some of our patients, which are paying less than our needed value. And we still need subsidies for those patients. And so a lot of these groups find that hey, we're increasing our volume, we're getting more patients, but we're not getting the increased, the incremental increase in the subsidy needed for that. And they start taking a loss over time instead of being able to grow with the hospital and grow with the increasing surgical volume, they tend to get left behind. Yeah, so you mentioned that this, this model presents some challenges or frustrations in, for, for a group in your position. Talk a little bit about how that has played out, how it played out in this situation. Yes. Um, I'll talk about a couple of things and I'll mention the coronavirus. I mean, we cannot, we cannot go without the talk without talking about that. So um, the number one frustration was uh, day one. Um, uh, it, so it, the first frustration was not so much from administration, but was from, again, we're a staffing group. We have to deal with issues. So actually, I'll be honest with you. I had a nurse anesthetist that was hired to work with me that decided not to work with me two days before Um and so I remember working 24-7 for 11 days in this hospital while I was trying to rehire and hire other people. Um, so the frustrations of people who don't want to show up or just, you know, typical things, you know, people who, who've got professionalism issues. Then you've got the issue of um, clinical competency. And this is really the second thing. I know I talked about the staffing solutions, but clinical competency was another thing. Um, and this is sad because, you know, I'd be working with anesthesiologists. Again, we're trying to protect our trade as anesthesiologists, but I see a lot of them not being able to do simple procedures, important procedures like epidurals and spinals for laboring pregnant patients in the community. Um, and this is significantly, this is a very big problem because not only is obstetrics and labor and delivery a big portion of every community hospital, it's a cornerstone. Um, there's also a significant amount of risk associated with these procedures. So there have been a number of times where I have to come and rescue or either take over a case and have to do you know, something after there was significant concern that the, my colleague was failing with the procedure or they simply were just doing it you know, improperly or very unsafe. So dealing from my own group with professionalism, staffing, and um, clinical competency issues. Then from an administrative portion, the frustration issues are dealing, and what I'm still dealing with, um, is being able to deal with difficult personalities and the patient safety issues. Again, we have to be able to deal with, you know, people that are sad, angry, frustrated. You know, that's the name of the game that happens everywhere. 
I have nothing, I have no problems with that. What I do have problems with is when it comes to patient safety issues. When you've got what I call the breadwinner surgeon in a small community hospital that brings in about 40% of the volume, um, but is causing all of the safety issues. Um, I, I'm like, we're literally like cringing right now thinking about the experiences we had to go through, but it was frustrating enough that we actually did not renew the contract with this hospital, this specific hospital in June. Um, and there were significant issues that happened thereafter. Um, and it was one of the things where, you know, we continuously had to, you know, I had to continue to stand up for my group, but then had to deal with the you know, administration being like, okay, well, your provider doesn't want to take care of the patient. Who's going to take care of the patient? Or this patient's been here, we need to do this. A case on a Saturday when we're not supposed to. And we were asked to continuously, you know, bend backwards or, you know, break medical staff bylaws and do things um, to cater to surgeons. So this is really the biggest thing is that we're a catering service to administration of surgeons um, over on top of the professionalism and clinical competency issues that we have to deal with in the community. Talk a little bit about, as much as you're able to, kind of the, the operating room dynamics uh, and, and the sense of responsibility that you have for patient safety and, and the complexity of dealing with that responsibility when you're in an OR with a surgeon who's the big breadwinner who basically gets per potentially like whatever the administration, the administration wants to keep them happy as somebody who's driving a lot of volume. Talk, how do you navigate that as a business owner, as a physician? That sounds very complex. That is, and that's in full transparency. That's usually you know, sort of the role of most anesthesia group leaders, you're always going to have a difficult um, personality. It just is. And you have to be able to deal with that, but you have to be able to draw the line. Now, when you're, you know, I, I lived this entire last year, my, my, my colleague and I, who are both in the OR with you know, a specific surgeon, um, and having to deal with these issues, um, you know, have a list of 87 complaints, you know, things sent to, you know, medical boards and stuff and, you know, peer review committees. And it's very frustrating, you know, when you're dealing with it and you don't feel like your voice is heard, even by your own other physicians that are, you know, um, on the medical staff with you. It's extremely frustrating and scary when, you know, you, even your colleagues are in the room dealing with a specific surgeon and your surgeons are, they can be so, and some of them can be have harsh personalities, which is fine. But the, and this is very important for you to note, Justin, the most difficult thing to deal with are surgeons that take away your ability to self-govern as a group. What do I mean by that? In the OR, we, ha we have to be at the helm of the ship. If there is a patient safety issue, we have to note it first, because I can guarantee you in these community hospitals, nobody else will. Um, and we have to speak up. And we have to say that, hey, this needs to, this is not safe. We need to do A, B, and C before we bring patient into the room. However, if we're doing that, especially if you're doing that with other nurse anesthetists and everything, a lot of the surgeons will not like that. A lot of surgeons have, are used to people just keeping their heads down and just you know, crossing their fingers and nothing bad happens under anesthesia. So then when I bring in a group of strong voiced individuals that actually wants to say something, we run into a lot of problems. And it came to the point where, you know, the surgeons were, or this specific surgeon, who really only one, was basically ignoring us, telling everyone in the OR to ignore us while we were in the room with the patient. Um, 
doing things like wheeling the patients in, trying to take over our care, um, overstepping boundaries and taking away our ability to self-govern, the most important thing. Did that surprise you when you experienced that and it was it, it persisted? So I knew something was coming into it, but with this specific surgeon, this is way, way above. I don't think I've ever dealt with anything like this. Um, but I have dealt with other double surgeons and um, I, I mean, I, it's a walk in the park compared to my experience last year. But regardless, I also have to think about what my colleagues are going through when they are taking care of. And it is daunting because when someone's mad, when someone's angry, um, it makes you do the opposite of your job. Our job is supposed to be vigilant and have a strong voice. If we're scared, you know, I remember my first years of training, coming out of training, I might be intimidated. I might not want to say something or I might tell somebody else and, you know, you know, communication gets dropped somewhere. So it does become very, very scary in a situation where lots of things are changing. The surgeons are not willing to communicate effectively with you. And then you're wondering, you know, how far can you stretch your own boundaries of safety, you know, before you, you know, say something that could irritate somebody. You shouldn't have to do that. You know, you shouldn't have to be worried about irritating the surgeon. You should be worried about the patient and the patient only. Unfortunately, I can tell you most of our job, like I said, we're a glorified staffing solution that really you need to make sure the surgeons are happy. We have to make sure the administration is happy. And the patients should be happy. And obviously, that's the most important thing. And hospitals will tell you that. Um, I can tell you last year, I, I, I pride myself on this. We had, our only complication was having four patients with post-operative nausea. No other complications. I can tell you the hospital didn't care about that at all. Um, and, you know, they were focused on the number of phone calls they were getting from the surgeon on the weekend about, you know, why we were intervening in her care. Yeah. And this was a big enough problem for you that you basically said, this isn't worth it to allow these patient safety issues to persist under our watch. So we're going to. I mean, I spent thousands of hours. I spent thousands of hours doing what I call value added services. I took over the supply chain management. My colleague and I actually helped them hire their OR director. A lot of these community hospitals, you know, can't even, you know, have issues with their own nursing staff. They didn't have a single full-time nurse in their operating room. You can imagine how difficult that is. And then having to integrate your group, trying to propose changes that are long lasting. None of it's gonna be long lasting if the if you're, you don't have a good perioperative team. And I guess that's another frustration that I forgot to mention was not having a good perioperative nursing staff in one of these hospitals at least, um, where we could have a lot of you know, things that actually stick. So, there's obviously a lot to learn here and a lot that I'm sure if you're doing RFPs in the future, you're going to know a lot more questions to ask. How do you envision this evolving? I, I think, and, and we've got an episode coming about the, coming up about this shortly, but with the way coronavirus, and I don't think we're even going to have time too much in this episode to talk about coronavirus impact, but it has dislocated some of the, I'll say the establishment of the anesthesia companies that that employ a lot of anesthesiologists and the way that those ownership the ownership of those companies are structured and it's it's there's flux right now between like big private practices physician-owned groups and even academics and this whole like ecosystem is is getting shaken up so i think there may be an opportunity for perhaps like a a renaissance of, of physician owners. I'm hopeful. A renaissance of physician ownership in this space. Um, how do you see that potentially unfolding, and how are you thinking about 
for your career, for your companies and businesses and future RFPs, future hiring, staffing, the future of your specialty? How do you see that evolving? So, you know, the honest answer is I don't really have a strong good answer, you know, at this point. It's very difficult um, with the frustrations that I told you, you know, um, we, 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 what we're trying to get to ideally is having, again, the physician autonomy, which I just told you, the ability to self-govern is compromised. Um, you need to have, uh, you know, an understanding of, um, you know, what it's like to have an individual physician or group of physicians running a group because, you know, unlike big companies, when you've got a small group of people, you got to take their personal lives and you know, my wife's pregnant. I can't keep running a group. I did, that's why I wasn't going to run this group in this hospital. You know, I'm going to keep dealing with issues and phone calls from angry CEOs in the middle of the night. And so, you know, we have to be able to find ways where we have autonomy and we can actually retain our independence and, and value rather than, oh, you're our middleman and you follow our commands because that's what most of them are. And so how do we navigate away from that? You know, a lot of it is I've always prided myself in value-added services. I briefly just mentioned that a few minutes ago. But like I said, we can come in and be viewed as a glorified staffing solution, or we can actually do other things. So in all my proposals, we talk about supply chain management, which it's a broad term. You may have heard about it in the whole coronavirus outbreak. It's basically the flow of supplies from vendors, the contracted vendors, into your sense of supply and then from your sense of supply into your anesthesia or OR workstations. Then we talk about um, we call root cause analysis. There's a continued quality improvement, um, which is usually done by the hospital anyways, but where you review your own cases and you, you, you review them with your colleagues and you're like, hey, your documentation, good documentation practices could be improved here. Or, hey, we could talk about your anesthetic over here. Or why did you label this patient ASA3? Or knock on wood, if there was an issue with the patient, you would be there doing a root cause analysis, looking at why this error happened. And so a lot of these things are usually taken for granted. Um, you know, again, these underbidding hospital anesthesia groups are not going to have an incentive to do these other things rather than just staff the ORs. And so by doing more of these things, people realize that, hey, well, you, they see more of your face. You can't just simply be, you know, someone staffing the OR front desk and a couple of people keeping their head down in the OR. If you want to be, if you want to save yourself in the hospital, you have to be walking around the entire thing. You have to be networking, introducing yourself, going to medical records and making sure, you know, none of your records are, you know, you know, um, delinquent, um, doing those things I talked to you about, um, talking with engineering about issues in the OR, is making yourself seen and known. And that can be very hard because as a group leader, then you not only have to propose a salary for your group, for your basic directorship stipend and then for your clinical involvement if you work in there. But then you have to be able to bite the bullet and be able to do these things without asking for more money for these value-added services. Remember, the hospital sees your group as there to provide, to staff the ORs. They know you have to do these other things, but they don't expect it really because no one else has really done that. But these value-added services are can really help with longevity. Um, but really, the other things, and unfortunately, I hate to say it, is the people who tend to keep their head down and you know not complain about a surgeon or a issue in the OR, they tend to get away with things. Um, 
And I've seen that, you know, the people who are very quiet tend to do very well in private practice models, um, you know, or even running groups. Um, and it's, it's something where I butted heads and I am butting heads as we speak with people. Um, but I pride myself on that. I was like, I'm going to run a group and I'm going to do this. I'm going to hold myself to fair market value salaries, and, you know, good treatment of my staff above every, anything else. Yeah. Well, it's been really invaluable hearing your story, your experience. I want to have you back, Dr. Shaw, to just continue this conversation because I think there's a lot of really valuable things in here that are, it's, it's information that's very difficult to access. It's so practical and actionable. And these are concepts and ideas that impact every physician working in America, understanding how your group contracts with other groups. And there's, yeah, the, the implications are real actual and experienced every day. So I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us here on APM Success. Thank you very much, Justin. Thank you for your time. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.